Well, good morning. How is everybody? Those are good responses. I love it. Hey, my name is David. I'm actually a pastor of Vintage Church. We also are part of Acts 29, the church planning network that Dylan talked about. So I'm excited to be here with you today. Uh, Vintage Church is one church in many locations. We have downtown Raleigh, North Raleigh, and Durham. And like Dylan said, I will be planting our next church and location, which we're calling Vintage Church West. It's going to be located right on the border of Apex and Cary, uh, meeting in a school called Laurel Park Elementary School. We'll talk more about it after service today, but I really am just so excited and honored, really, to be here with you all today as we continue your series, Masterclass, where we've been walking through the letter that Paul wrote, uh, 1 Corinthians. That's the book of the Bible, and it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Today, specifically, we're going to be in chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles and join me there, that would be great. If you don't have a Bible, there's actually black Bibles in the pew backs behind you, and uh, the page number is exactly where we are today. Um, I'm really excited to jump in together, but before we do that, would you pray with me? Um, God, thank you for bringing us here safely. Thank you for this opportunity to gather and to worship and to hear from you. And I pray that you would do that now, that you would speak. Um, would these words on paper come alive? Would you open up our ears to hear you and our hearts to receive you and to respond? And would you shape us more into the image of Jesus? And it's in his name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. So my family, which we call ourselves the Mob Squad, right? Because Mob leads the Mob Squad. We love the beach. I mean, if you like the mountains, like, I still love you, but something's wrong with you. We always choose the beach over the mountains. And in fact, we just got back from a week-long trip to the beach, and it was fantastic. I mean, we just love going to the beach. Now, we also have a five-year-old daughter whose name is Amelia Grace, and she is obsessed with catching those little minnows, those little fish in the tide pools. And you think I'm joking. She would be out there for hours obsessively running around, slapping this $2 Walmart net into the water and then slowly lifting it up. And, oh, I don't have anything. And sprinting over here, and slapping it down. And she could not stop until she caught one of those minnows. If she didn't catch one, she was distraught. She was obsessed. I mean, she couldn't give it up. But if she caught one, if she caught one, her day was made. The week was made. And so in similar fashion, as we jump in today, I want to ask you a question. What is your heart's deepest desire? What is your heart's deepest desire? Because listen, we were made to be all in, to be in total pursuit of something. What is that for you? What is that for you? What do you believe will give you satisfaction, joy, acceptance, identity, comfort, security? The list goes on. What is that for you? Maybe it's a relationship, right? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a significant other. Maybe it's even your friends or maybe it's your kids. Perhaps it's a title. Maybe a degree from a school or a certain position at work that you just really want to get. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's a well-paying job, a certain salary, or maybe it's a certain number in the bank. Maybe it's a lifestyle, or maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's that house. Maybe it's that car. Maybe it's that gadget. But what is that thing for you? Some of us today may know it. Some of us may not. But we need to evaluate and really discern what is that thing, because that person 
or that thing will drive everything that you are. It will literally be the center of your life, what you spend your time, your money, your resources, your emotions, everything. So what is your heart's deepest desire? Keeping that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into our passage today. We will start in verses 14 through 15. They say this, So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. Now, remember that this is a continuous letter. It's not broken out in our Bibles like we see today. And so when Paul starts our passage today with, So then, we need to remember what he just wrote. And so the recipient of this letter would have just finished verses 1 through 13, in which Paul detailed uh, the Israelites after their time leaving Egypt, and they were wandering around in the wilderness. And what Paul is essentially saying in that passage is that the Israelites got to witness firsthand God moving among his people. They got to see him moving every day. And yet, as Paul would say in verse 7, they were still idolaters. And he essentially says these guys were examples. Examples of what not to do, right? But here are his examples. Do not do this. And now he's shifting his attention directly to the church in Corinth, whose people were accustomed to joining in sacrificial meals of various deities, different gods or idols, none of which required an exclusive relationship. So sacrifice to this idol, sacrifice to this idol, eat this meal, eat that meal. That's who he's writing to. And so now he starts with a strong plea to his dear friends to what? Flee from idolatry. Now, the choice of words is clear here. He uses flee. Drop what you're doing, turn the other way, and run. Flee is a strong word, and we need to read the rest of this passage in light of that. Flee from idols. Now, before we go any further, I think we need to define what is idolatry, right? That can be a Christianese word, and so if you don't know what idolatry means, the rest of this is not going to make any sense. So simply put, idolatry is placing anything in the place of God. Idolatry is placing anything in the place of God. So when you hear Paul or anyone else using the word idolatry, they may also mean worshiping, being all in or pursuing something other than God, right? Idolatry is one of those catchphrases, right? But it's essentially anything that gets the attention, the worship, the praise, the pursuit that God is due. Now, I know that sounds like a very simple definition, but the act itself is more complex than you could ever imagine. And it's one of those things that we can't even see when we're doing it, and we'll jump into that a little bit later, but we just need to define what idolatry is. Now, note what Paul says in verse 15. He calls the church what? A sensible people, right? He wants them to use their minds to really evaluate what he's saying. Not just here's an instruction, go do it, but let me tell you why you should flee from idolatry. And that's really my hope for us today too, right? I don't want this to be a just don't worship idols. I want us to be a church as well that would open up our Bibles and to see what God would have to say to us today, right? So let's do that. Let's continue now in verses 16 through 17. They say this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. So in Paul's opening argument, so why we should free from idolatry, he references the Lord's Supper, which was the last meal that Jesus took with his disciples on the night of his betrayal and eventual crucifixion. In that meal, Jesus would take a piece of bread and pass it around the table, saying, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Later, he would pass a cup that had wine, and he would say, take and drink, this is my blood shed for you. All of this being symbolic of the crucifixion of Jesus, where his hands would be pierced, his body would be broken, and his blood would be shed. So when Paul says here, the sharing of the blood and the sharing of the body, he's drawing on an imagery of the Lord's Supper. And he's building a case for us being unified in Christ. That together, when we share this meal and we take it together, when we remember his life and death and resurrection, we're being unified in him. And that really, those who are taking this meal are aligning themselves with Jesus, right? As I take this meal, I'm aligning myself with Jesus. So let's continue in verse 18. He says, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? So if the first analogy was confusing, this one's even more confusing, am I right? I'm like, what are you even talking about, Paul? So even commentators are somewhat torn on this. Some say that he's referring to the fact that the priests, as you read about in Leviticus, were able to take portions of offerings and eat it for themselves. It was a portion set aside for them, but that they would actually eat some of the sacrifices that were made on the, uh, the altar. Rather, uh, Some say that he's referring to a meal that everybody would take after this ceremony was done, after the sacrifices were made, that the priests, the worshipers, everybody would eat and gather together. And still some say that he's referring to what he said in chapter 9, verse 13, where he kind of makes a very similar point. But regardless of the analogy, what Paul is saying is that those who receive the food of the sacrifice at the altar also into, enter into fellowship for all that the altar stands for. Right? So when I'm consuming this food that's being sacrificed, no matter what we're talking, we're entering into fellowship, into a union of what we're doing in that moment in the same way that those who take communion are entering fellowship into Jesus. So essentially what Paul is saying here is that in both cases, there's more going on than a physical meal. There's more going on than a physical meal. There's an act, a spiritual declaration. Both meals are a declaration of alignment. Who or what they're aligning with. You see what he's doing here? And so this transitions really well into 19 through 20 where Paul says this. What am I saying then? I don't know, Paul, what are you saying? No, I'm just joking. The food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to what? Demons. And not to God. And look at this plea here. I do not want you to be participants with what? Demons. So now Paul is drawing back on what he said in verse 14 in the opening of this passage, which was what? Flee from idolatry. That's where he's going with here. And what's odd to me is that in this little segment that we just read in 19, he doesn't so much care what is being sacrificed or even the idol itself. Do you see that? I mean, he's asking those rhetorical questions. Why is that? 
Why would he make this big argument and then say something like that? It's because idols, supposed other gods in that time, do not exist. There's the one true God, right? But the act of aligning ourselves with something other than God very much does exist. That's why Paul is saying this. So now we're really starting to enter into the the, the primary point of his argument. Because listen, Paul doesn't care about the idol itself. He cares about our hearts. He doesn't care about the idol. He cares about our hearts. Like we said earlier, we are a people that desire to be all in on something, right? That's how we're built. That's how our minds, our soul, our hearts, everything is built. That's how we live. And Paul comes out strong, stating in verse 20, that anything that is not done unto God is done unto demons. The act is not neutral. It's for God, against God. That's what Paul is saying here. And I get that's a strong statement, right? I get that writing this message and getting assigned a passage that talks about demons is an awkward thing, but this is what the Bible is saying. This is not me. This is God's word. And in our society today, I just don't think we look at idolatry as a big deal. We just don't look at it in the lens of extremity as Paul did. And we'll get to the application here in a minute, but don't miss this bold statement from Paul. We cannot overlook this. And I think Paul would say to us what he said to the church in Corinth, which is, I do not want you to be participants with demons. I mean, that's what he's writing here. Luckily, he doesn't end here because that would be a really awkward ending and what would we do with it, right? But he ends with a plea and a charge, really. He says this in the 21 through 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we provo- or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So here Paul makes it pretty simple. We can't be lukewarm. We can't have one foot in and one foot out. We're all in on one or the other. And it's so important that he says it twice in one verse. Right? Look at it again. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. I think that gets the point across, but he keeps going. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Why? Why can't I do both? Because again, there's more going on than physical practices. What he's doing here is using the same logic that he just used with communion and the altar, right? Remember when we said whenever you eat of that meal and you eat of the altar, you're all in for it? That's what he's saying. So he's trying to use logic to speak to us and the church in uh, Corinth. And by its definition, your heart can only pursue, fully pursue one thing. Your heart can only fully pursue one thing. In other words, you can only be all in on one thing. That's the definition, to be all in. Would you agree? And to be a follower of Christ means aligning our entire lives with him. It's not just portions of our life, our entire life. And can we do that if we also participate with the enemy? And that's what Paul is saying. If you think giving Jesus 98% of your heart and 2% of his off here doing this, you're not all in for Jesus. 
You can't do both. That's what Paul is saying. And so I think this transitions very nicely into why is idolatry a big deal? I think it's a very valid question to ask. Why is idolatry a big deal? Well, Paul told us pretty plainly in verse 22, where he says this, idolatry provokes God to what? Jealousy. Jealousy. And again, in 2019, being educated as most of us are in this room, we don't take idolatry seriously. And oftentimes I think that we believe that the idea of even worrying about it seems outdated, right? Almost even pagan. Like, why am I going to worry about idolatry? And I think the progression for most of us looks something like this. Usually it's God doesn't care. God doesn't care that I'm doing this or that he turns a blind eye. Or maybe we start to think that it hurts his feelings, that he might be a little offended, but it's not that big of a deal. And then it stops. We don't consider, as Paul would say, that it's demonic and that it provokes God to jealousy. But we can't ignore that idolatry, in essence, angers God. And we see this clearly from him in Exodus chapter 20, where he gives Moses uh, his first 10, or the 10 commandments, rather. We're going to read chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. It'll actually be on the screens. Then God, this is God himself. God speaks all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth or below or in the waters under the earth. In other words, don't make idols, right? Do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the father's inequity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But what? Showing faithful love to a thousand generations who love me and keep my commandments. So plainly, the first two commandments that God gives Moses, the first two, right? Like you're going to read these before you read anything else. No other gods but the one true God. No other idols, or no idols rather. Like that's exactly what we're talking about today, is it not? And here again, we see God even call out his own jealousy. Why is he jealous? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, he has the right to be. Okay, so I don't know where you may stand on your your spectrum of faith, whether you're a a non-believer, a believer, or maybe you just hate Jesus, I don't know. But just assume that God is the ruler of the universe that we believe, right? That he has dominion over all things. That means there's no equal, right, by definition? So if we are to worship anything at his level or higher, how would you expect him to respond? It would only make sense to be jealous, right? All honor and glory is due to God. But second, we see this in this passage now. Second, it's because he has a faithful love for us. No matter how unfaithful we are, he has a faithful love for us. A love that our words, my words, no analogy can adequately express. But it's a love that's made manifest by sending his only son to die for us so that anyone who would believe in him would be reconciled with God the Father. He's jealous because he loves. And he's jealous because he wants our hearts. And so when our hearts are in pursuit of idols, 
anything other than God, it's sin. It's sin. And it drives him to jealousy because he so deeply loves us. I mean, the analogy is like having a significant other, a spouse, a friend, your kids, whoever, just someone that you deeply love. Your hope is not to have their actions. What is your hope to have? Their heart. Why? Because actions follow the heart. Actions follow the heart. And when we choose something other than God, it's denying the one that is all in for us, made evident by sending his son to die for us. No analogy will do illustration for this, or do justice, rather. God wants you to be all in for him because he is all in for you. Never question that. He is so all in for you. And he just wants you to be all in back. If something else has my heart, if it's not God, what's really going on? It's more than just pursuing something. It's aligning with something else or, or being all in. Like we talked about, we're essentially choosing sides. And Paul is saying that if our heart is not all in on God, it's demonic. There's two choices. Our hearts are either fully to God or fully to idols. There's no in between. That's what we're reading today which leads us to ask, what are idols? Well, mostly in that time, it would have been carved images. For the Israelites, while Moses was getting these first 10 commandments, they just get bored and they're like, what are we going to worship? And so I know Dylan hit on this last week, but they take gold, they, they make it to the image of a calf, and they worship it. I mean, that's what they did. Now, we would look at that and say, how pagan. Why are you making carved images of wood and worshiping them or making a golden calf? But we do the same thing in 2019. Going back to our definition of idolatry, idols are anything created, put in the place of the creator. Anything that is created being put in the place of the creator. Uh, a pastor once said, idols are good things that become God things, and that's a bad thing. It's kind of an easy way to remember that. Idols are a good thing that become a God thing, and that is a bad thing. So let me explain. An idol, in and of itself, not a bad thing. It's like, what? Yeah, just listen. Idols, in and of themselves, are not a bad thing. In the case of the Israelites, is gold inherently a bad thing? What is it? It's a mineral from the ground. That's what it is. That's what gold is. No, it's not bad. Is a cow bad? Anybody ever had ice cream? Like, no, cows are a good thing. Cows are great, right? Now, is worshiping a golden calf instead of God a good thing? No, but neither of those things inherently of themselves are bad. The only way, hear me now, the only way that a created thing becomes a bad thing is what? Our hearts. Our hearts make the created thing a God thing, which is a bad thing. And sometimes we hear the opposite in our society, in our culture. Some of you here today may have been burned by a church, your family, your friends, or another Christian that said something like this, money is a bad thing. Money's a bad thing. Sex, whew, you better run away. That's a terrible thing. Status is a bad thing. Power is a bad thing. And what I want you to hear today is that's not true. That is not true. Those things in and of themselves are not bad things. They're not. They are created things 
that are good when they stay in that place. Make millions of dollars. Make millions of dollars, but use it for the advancement of the gospel. Share the gospel with the ends of the earth. Feed the hungry. Clothe the homeless. Use your money as a tool to be all in for Jesus. Sex is a beautiful gift. I know you guys like had like a whole series on that. I'm sure you know this, but like sex is a beautiful thing. If it stays within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, it brings to fruition this idea of two becoming one that we read about in Genesis. Sex in and of itself is a beautiful way to worship God. You won't hear that many other places, right? But it is. Achieve great status. Go for it. But use it to influence others and their walk with Jesus. Get to a position of great power and authority, but use it for justice, not for yourself. Use it for justice. Listen, God has gifted us with many blessings. Enjoy them, but for what they were intended for, which is ultimately for his glory, not ours. Now, I think this transitions us into how do I know when I'm committing um, idolatry? How do I know? right? If this is a matter of the heart, how do I know? And unfortunately, this is a really complex thing to dive into, probably something that y'all could spend weeks or we could spend weeks or even a year talking about, but I will give you some examples of what it looks like for me, okay? So when I have found that I am idolizing something, my emotions are never even keel over it. They're never even keel. It swings from like sadness to excitement to frustration to anticipation. I mean, I'm just a roller coaster of emotions as I'm looking to pursue this thing because I'm passionate about it, because I want it. Or if I'm scheming to get it and I don't get it, like nothing bothers me more. So for me, it's like an emotional thing. It's like my, my daughter, right, with the fish. She just, the entire day is so focused on getting it that when she doesn't get it, she's distraught. And when she gets it, there's literally nothing better in the world. That range of emotions comes with idols. But it's more than just emotions. It's what will sacrifice for it. So while we may not uh, slay animals on an altar, we sacrifice in 2019. We'll sacrifice our time, our money, our relationships even, our resources, our energy, our bandwidth, we sacrifice to get something. Don't think that it's pagan. And again, our hearts are built for this. Well, another pastor that comes to mind now says that our hearts are idol factories. Like they're always trying to produce something to worship. That's how our hearts are built. So the question is not if I'm pursuing someone or something, but the question is what am I pursuing? Not if I'm pursuing, but what am I pursuing? So I would ask you today, where might you, where might I be committing idolatry? Because it's not if, I don't think it's if, I think it's where am I, I'll be honest. Where might my heart be drifting to? Maybe it's some of the ones we talked about. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's your comfort, your security, maybe it's even yourself. Maybe you are your God instead of the one true God. But spend time in your community groups, in your family, in your relationships, really asking that question, where do you think I might be committing idolatry? Because I'll tell you this, we're often blind to it. We're often blind to our own sin, blind to our own idolatry, and somebody else, I'll get a name in from somebody, someone else can really easily call us out on our own sin. You know what I'm talking about? So do it in a way where you really want to know. 
Like, where do you think I might be committing idolatry? And someone will tell you. Spend time in community talking about it. So I think this is what's going to wrap us up now. So what needs to change and how? What needs to change? Because I don't know about you, but as I prepared for this, as I read through this passage, and even as I'm speaking now, I am convinced of two things. Number one is that my heart is often, if not always, never fully in for God. I'm never fully in for God. My heart's always looking for something. It's looking for something to fulfill it, and it will jump from thing to thing to thing, hoping that it will, but it never satisfies me. Nothing ever does. Now listen, you may think, like, this thing does satisfy me, but it it may for a season, but it will go. And then your heart will be on to something else. And mine is never all in for God. And the second thing that I'm convicted of, and I think we read this here, is that when my heart's not fully in for God, it's sin. And sin separates me from God. My heart's not fully in for God. When it's not, it's sin. What on earth am I supposed to do? Look to the one who did. And his name was Jesus. There is only one who lived the perfect life that I could not. One without idolatry. And his name is Jesus. The one who dropped attributes of his deity to come and live as a man. The one who had all the riches in the world, in the universe, and laid them down and came as a homeless man. The one who had all power imaginable, instead of using it for his betterment, used it for others. And one, and maybe this is the biggest idol in our time, sacrificed his comfort and security to die on a cross. Even for his enemies. All with a heart, perfectly all in towards God the Father, in perfect submission to his will, so that all who believe in his name may not just have eternal life and to be made right with God, but to have a changed heart, to have a new heart. But it was because when I look to Jesus and I place my faith in him, I don't change my heart. God does. And that's a beautiful thing. I don't change my heart, but God does. Listen, I know we've covered a lot today. I want us to walk away with this. And the bottom line, our hearts are always looking to pursue something, but they'll only be fulfilled by Jesus. Our hearts are always looking to pursue something, but they'll only be fulfilled by Jesus. In him, you will have the love, identity, status, power, relationship, everything that your heart so frantically searches for. Because Jesus is the only worthy idol. Jesus is the only worthy idol. I think we've all agreed that no other person or thing in this world will satisfy you. But Jesus will. Would you today flee from idols and run to the arms of Jesus? He is who your heart is so desperately looking for. Let's pray.